Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. And now for a brief recap of last week's episode. On the evening of June the 27th, 1918, the hospital ship Landovery Castle was crossing the Atlantic, returning to Britain after taking wounded Canadian troops home. There were no injured aboard her, but there were 258 crew and medical staff. About 100 of the crew were originally from Bristol. Though she was showing bright lights and was clearly a hospital ship, and therefore should have been immune from attack under the normal rules of war, the German U-boat U-86, commanded by Helmut Patzig, torpedoed her. Realising his mistake, the German captain then tried to cover up a war crime by deliberately ramming the lifeboats and machine-gunning any survivors in the water. Only 24 people escaped on a single lifeboat, and they were rescued shortly afterwards and testified as to what had happened. The 237 others on board Landovery Castle were lost, including 14 nurses. It was a few years before any attempt was made to bring anyone to justice, and on the 21st of July, 1921, Lieutenants Ludwig Dithmar and Johann Bolt were convicted and sentenced to four years in prison, but were released after only four months after their convictions were quashed on appeal on the grounds that the captain was solely responsible. But the captain, Helmut Patzig, had fled to the free city of Danzig and his trial was stopped on the 20th of March, 1931, by virtue of the laws of amnesty. Here's some information about the German U-boat. She was a Type 86 and had a displacement of 808 tonnes when at the surface and 946 while submerged. She also had a total length of just over 70 metres and was capable of operating at depths of up to 50 metres. The U-86 was surrendered to the Allies at Harwich on the 21st of November 1918 in accordance with the requirements of the armistice with Germany. Exhibited at Bristol in December 1918, along with UC-92, visitors could pay to go on board, with proceeds going to charity. She was then laid up at Portsmouth until scuttled in the English Channel on the 30th of June 1921. One of the survivors of that fateful night was Leslie Chapman, who had been promoted to second officer on the Landovery Castle. He had served on her maiden voyage in happier times 
and now found that the same master and chief officer was still with her, as on the maiden voyage. Their duties were to evacuate Canadian troops from Avonmouth to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and on the 27th of June, 1918, they were 116 miles west of Fastnet Lighthouse on the voyage back to Avonmouth to evacuate more patients with a full complement of medical and nursing staff. The following is written in Leslie's own words. At 9.20pm, I suddenly found myself blown out of my bunk and landed on the floor of my cabin. On my rude awakening, I did not grasp what had happened until a brother officer came running off the bridge and said we had been torpedoed. The vessel commenced sinking by the stern quickly and the captain gave the order to abandon ship and send an SOS on the wireless. This was not possible because the apparatus had been smashed by the explosion. We had a difficult job getting boats into the water and the vessel took a starboard list, rendering some of the port boats useless. The ship was still moving through the water, slowly, as we could not use the engines to take the way off her. The torpedo having hit us in the engine room, the most vital spot. This put all machinery out of action, including the dynamos. An attempt was made to start the emergency dynamo, but this was situated in the steering engine room right aft. As we got the first flicker of light, the stern went under and stopped the machinery, swore the boat launching was done in the dark, not making things any easier. They eventually managed to get five boats clear, all full of people. Two of the boats were dragged under the water instantly and the occupants thrown into the sea. The chief officer met Leslie on deck, telling him that he had kept an accident boat till the last for the people who had lowered the other boats so they could get away. Leslie then called out to see if there were any more people left on board. Ten men came along, one of whom was the captain, determined to be the last man left. Just as they were all getting into the last remaining lifeboat, Leslie remembered one last survivor, George. At the last moment, I remembered George, my pet canary, and dashed back into my room, where, with the help of my torch, I found him amongst the wreckage still in his cage. I stuck him in a cigarette tin by banding his tail round. Fortunately, the one I kept his daily supply of seed in, so he did not go hungry, and put it into my pocket and then rushed back onto the boat. We had barely pushed off when there was a tremendous explosion, the forward funnel crashed down and the vessel stood bolt upright and went down like a stone. I could not help exclaiming at the time, what a wonderful sight under any other circumstances. The captain replied, there goes my diary that I've been keeping all my seafaring life. He was over 60 and very sad. The noise was deafening, the boilers bursting, the crockery smashing, and hundreds of tons of coal and sand ballast shifting all at once, but it was over quickly. Ten minutes after the time she was struck, she disappeared beneath the waves, leaving only wreckage floating on the surface, and to lend weirdness to the sight, several calcium lights were burning attached to the life boys, which had floated off as the vessel sank. After the noise of the sinking vessel ceased, cries for help could be heard all around, and the remaining lifeboats quickly went in search of their fellow crewmates, picking people out of the water. Leslie's own little boat managed to save 12 men, the last being Purser Evans. 
That was when they saw a lamp flashing. Their immediate thought was that it was another boat answering his distress torch, but instead, a German voice ordered them to come alongside as the shape of the German U-boat appeared out of the gloom of the night, coming towards them. I hailed him and told him to wait, as we had several people alongside us in the water. I was answered by the contents of two revolvers, which were fired in the darkness, and we were threatened with, as he called it, the big gun, if we didn't come to him at once. During this time, the captain of the Landovery, being an elderly man and a bit shaken, had left things to me, the next senior officer in the boat. He said we had better pull alongside to avoid any further trouble. Compelled to leave our shipmates to drown, we went alongside the submarine, which proved to be U-86, and in very good English, I was ordered to come on board. Not being very anxious to do so, I pretended not to hear him. The officer then flashed a torch onto me and said, Come quickly, you, with the white hat, or I will shoot you. Then, I being no doubt as to the one he wanted, I hoisted myself onto the U-boat's deck. My heart, I must admit, feeling much lower than it usually did. I was immediately questioned about the ship, and the lieutenant showed no surprise when I told him it was a hospital ship. Welcome back, everyone. Before the break, you heard I Want to Tell You by the Beatles. But now let's continue with second officer Leslie Chapman's recollections of that fateful night on the Landovery Council. I was immediately questioned about the ship and the lieutenant showed no surprise when I told him it was a hospital ship and that there were 14 nurses adrift in the boats. In the meantime, the fourth officer was ordered on board for questioning. During my cross-examination, I inadvertently took the tin with George in it out of my pocket. This was seized immediately, and I was looking down the muzzle of a revolver, the tin having been mistaken for a bomb. I quickly told him it was a canary. After making sure, he handed the tin back. Eventually, the fourth officer and myself were told to get back into the boat with the parting words, Don't get wet. You may be a long time in the boat, but you may not. While showing us the way with a torch, they suddenly saw the captain and a Canadian doctor in the boat and ordered them on board. The doctor was handled rather roughly while being helped on board and one of his ankles was broken. The captain said, Goodbye. You know what course to steer for. Fastnet. But thank goodness, after questioning them, they were both put back into the boat again. The reason for this soon became obvious. No sooner had we pulled away than the submarine tried to swamp us and at the same time opened fire at point-blank range with his gun, fortunately missing us, as we were too close for his gun to bear. And before he could bear on us again, we were lost in the darkness. Finding other boats, however, he carried out his ghastly work, and as it transpired later, we were the only survivors, numbering 24 out of a total of 258 crew and medical staff. The lifeboat was eventually sighted by a British destroyer, HMS Lysander, which came alongside and they struggled to climb aboard. All in a weak and traumatised state, but were revived with a hot bath and a good meal. Leslie had no idea that the hot coffee could taste so good. George was given a much bigger biscuit tin. We were the sole survivors, and strangely enough, 12 of us were the last to leave the poor old Landovery after getting the other boats away. I was mightily glad to get home and see my wife and newborn baby, which at, the t- at one time... I'd given up hopes of doing. 
Now, I'm going to have to tell you that, unfortunately, due to family self-isolation situations, we haven't been able to do any of the walking for a while. So, instead, this week, I'm going to give you a book review. Book of the Week. The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. I've never heard of either of them, but this is a book about books, a story about stories, with beautiful characters, a wonderful storyline and vividly descriptive writing. You all get swept away in the tale of Daniel, an antiquarian book dealer's son, who mourns the loss of his mother and finds solace in a mysterious book entitled The Shadow of the Wind by one Julian Carax. But when he sets out to find the author's other works, he makes a shocking discovery. And I'm not going to say any more about the book, but it's it's absolutely brilliant. And it's, it's one of the best books that I've read in a very, very long time. And I highly recommend it. On board the Landovery Castle were 14 nurses engaged on hospital ship duty. The majority of them volunteered for service at the outbreak of war in 1914, came to England and France with the 1st Canadian Division and had seen active service chiefly in casualty clearing stations in France with the 1st Canadian Division and had seen active service chiefly in casualty clearing stations in France throughout the intervening period and recently been transferred to transport duty just as a change. One of the nurses was nursing sister Miss Margaret Marjorie Pearl Fraser, who had volunteered for active service on September the 29th, 1914, and had been on duty for almost three years. And in that time, most of her patients had been German wounded. Many times she had been the first to give a drink of water to these parched enemy casualties. Many times she'd written down the dying statements of enemy officers and men transmitting them to their relatives through the Red Cross organisation. For many months, and in some cases two years, these sisters endured hazards of the shelled areas in France, and the way they faced their final ordeal is simply related by Sergeant A. Knight, who took charge of lifeboat number five, into which the nurses were placed. Our boat was quickly loaded and lowered to the surface of the water. And then the crew of eight men and myself faced the difficulty of getting free from the ropes holding us to the ship's side. I broke two axes trying to cut ourselves away, but was unsuccessful. With the forward motion and choppy sea, the boat all the time was pounding against the ship's side. To save the boat, we tried to keep ourselves away by using the oars, and soon every one of the latter were broken. Finally, the ropes became loose at the top, and we commenced to drift away. We were carried towards the stern of the ship, when suddenly the poop deck seemed to break away and sunk. The suction drew us in quickly into the vacuum, the boat tipped over sideways and every occupant went under. I estimate we were together in the boat about eight minutes. In that whole time I did not hear a complaint or murmur from one of the sisters. They were perfectly calm and collected, everyone perfectly conscious. There was not a cry for help or any outward evidence of fear. In the entire time I overheard only one remark. When the matron, nursing sister M. M. Fraser, turned to me as we drifted helplessly towards the stern of the ship and asked, Sergeant, do you think there is any hope for us? I replied, no, seeing myself our helplessness without oars and the sinking condition of the stern of the ship. 
A few seconds later, we were drawn into the whirlpool of the submerged aft deck, and the last I saw of the nursing sisters was as they were thrown over the side of the boat. All were wearing life belts, and of the 14, two of them were in their nightdress, the others in uniform. It was doubtful if any of them came to the surface again, although I myself sank and came up three times, finally clinging to a piece of wreckage and eventually being picked up by the captain's boat. Breaking news, a man who took an airline company to court after his luggage went missing has lost his case. Much later after the attack, HMS Moria steamed through the wreckage. Captain Kenneth Cummins recalled the horror of coming across the nurses' floating corpses. We were in the Bristol Channel, quite well out to sea, and suddenly we began going through corpses. The Germans had sunk a British hospital ship, the Landovery Castle, and we were sailing through floating bodies. We were not allowed to stop, we just had to go straight through. It was quite horrific, and my reaction was to vomit over the edge. It was something we could never have imagined particularly the nurses. Seeing these bodies of women and nurses floating in the ocean, having been there some time, huge aprons and skirts and billows, which looked almost like sails because they dried in the hot sun. There was no chance of rescuing them. They were all dead. As the fighting ship, which we were, we were not permitted to stop unless ordered to do so by the Admiralty. The Canadian reaction to the incident was summed up by Brigadier George Tuxford, former homesteader from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and commanding officer of the 3rd Infantry Brigade, 1st Canadian Division. Amongst those murdered were two Moose Jaw nurses, Sister Fraser and Sister Gallagher. I gave instructions to the brigade that the battle cry on the 8th of August should be Landovery Castle, and that that cry should be the last to ring in the ears of the Hun as the bayonet was driven home. There is a memorial plaque to matron Margaret Fraser and the 13 other Canadian nurses sponsored by Lady Dufferin and was placed at the nurses' house of the Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital in London, England. There are also memorial plaques to the ship at Stadacona Hospital CFB Halifax, Nova Scotia, Montreal General Hospital and the Children's Hospital in Halifax. The latter two monuments unveiled by Margaret C. MacDonald. An opera based on the sinking of the ship premiered in Toronto on the 100th anniversary of the sinking in June 2018. The opera is composed by Stephanie Martin and according to one reviewer... Breaks the story down into nine scenes set on a ship and, at the end, in the lifeboats, before the chorus steps out of time to reflect on what we've seen and heard.
Here are a few words from Tom Diamond, the director, and Stephanie Martin, the composer of the opera. At a time in our world when we hear about military convoys and doctors without borders not being able to do their job, it becomes important to not only tell stories about that, but tell stories about what's happened in the past, because clearly we are forgetting that we can't be bombing people that want to help. Although the plaque says their name liveth forevermore, we really have to take the time to remember. I think it's important that this, in essence, forgotten piece of history is being recalled a hundred years to the day that it happened. When Paul and Stephanie approached us with this piece, we were so excited because Bicycle Opera has done a lot of contemporary music, but we've never had the experience of developing a piece from the ground up. I'll drown as I feared, like my sister. I wrote the same Yeah? I, in the past, have seen the Bicycle Opera in action, and uh, when I got the call to work with them, I was thrilled because to work with a smaller company, a company that is that has their values so strongly in, in place, and do such interesting, interesting work, I was really thrilled to get that call. Well, we're really fortunate to have an amazing cast and creative team on this project. With a company that's sort of set up like Bike Opera, you become a family. So I didn't hesitate to say yes when they asked again. Any theatre is collaborative. You, you work away as the writer of the words and then you bring it to other incredibly talented people who elevate it, who, who run with it. The time period where the beginnings of the golden age of radio. And so the concept, the idea here, is to put this on the stage as if it were a radio drama performed for the radio, but with a live audience. workshops are about process and in a workshop what we're really trying to do myself and the musical director and the creators we are trying to make this piece the best piece that this piece can possibly be. One of the performances of this opera will be on June 27, 2018. That is 100 years to the night that the sinking of the hospital ship occurred. There's so many war stories but I don't know how many of them actually tell a woman's like women's story in the war. And this is really about these amazing women. I think that's an incredible Canadian story to be told. I think it's gonna be very emotional, very powerful.
Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Back in the day, facts. On the 5th of September, 1698, Russian Tsar Peter the Great imposed a tax on beards to encourage the westernisation of fashion in his country. Also on the 5th of September, one of Bristol's best-known hotels, the Avon Gorge, standing next to the Clifton Suspension Bridge, was sold in 2007 for £15.5 million. On the 6th of September 1952, a jet fighter disintegrated and fell into a crowd at the Farnborough Air Show, killing a total of 31 people. On the 7th of September in 1949, Gloria Gaynor, the singer who had a 1979 UK and US number one single with I Will Survive, was born. On the 8th of September in 1664, the American city of New Amsterdam was captured from the Dutch by the British Army and renamed New York. And on the 9th of September in 1956, Elvis Presley made his first appearance on US television's The Ed Sullivan Show. And now, my friends, it's the end of yet another show, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. And of course, a huge thanks to the people who are the real stars of this show, the ones that make me look good. And this week, they include Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Sandwell, Bristol, as well as Henry Arnold from Bradley Stoke Radio and Garrett Oddle from the Ever-Trending Story podcast, as well as Nikki Smith from Dear Nikki Podcast. I'd also like to say thank you to Darren at Limberlost Films for allowing me to use the audio from his production of Behind the Scenes of the Landovery Castle Opera. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>